Hey, what's up, everybody? Joel Sedicase here. Good to uh, be with you tonight. I'm going to take my time getting started here because people tend to uh, take a little while to join us, and that's perfectly fine. But uh, thanks for joining me tonight. We are talking about um, apologetics. And apologetics, again, is the defense of the Christian faith. It's, uh, it's giving an example or giving an, an explanation or an answer to anybody who asks you for the reasons for the hope that is within you. And uh, I'm really pumped about this one because we're talking about literature and literary techniques. And this is where I get to flex the, uh, uh, where I get to prove that my first year in college was not in vain because I was actually a an English major for the first like couple semesters of undergrad. So we're talking about literature and I get to prove that I actually learned something during those first few uh, semesters. Although I got to be honest, I don't remember all that much, but I do remember foreshadowing. So Jerry just joined us. Jerry, what's up, man? Good to see you. Glad you're here. Hope you're, uh, how is your men's group going, by the way? Uh, if you're out in the western suburbs at all and uh, you're available on, I don't know, I think they meet maybe on Thursday nights. I'm not sure about that. But Jerry Sellers has a men's group that uh, they get together and have some pretty awesome conversations and uh, definitely something you, you'd want to check out. Um, I'll let him post the details of that in the comments. But, uh, and Missy's here. Missy, what's up? Glad you're joining us tonight. We're talking about literature. We're talking about the Bible and answering the question, how do we know that the Bible is written by God? And we're, we're specifically talking about the literary technique of foreshadowing. What does foreshadowing have to do with the Bible? What does literature have to do with the Bible? Well, we're going to get into that. So let's actually, let's, let's actually talk about that. So the Bible, we think of the Bible as a single book. And that makes sense because, you know, here we've got, I've got my Bible with my uh, Bible cover there with the five solas of the Reformation on it. And if I open it up, there is a single table of contents, okay? It tells you the books of the Bible and um, where to find them. And, uh, oh, good. Awesome. Okay, so Jerry's group meets at 7.30. Jerry, what night do you guys meet? Jerry's got a men's group in the west suburbs of Chicago, and uh, it's an awesome group. They have good discussions. They, they eat and drink and discuss. They meet at 7.30, and um, I'll let him post what night of the week they meet up. And uh, Missy and Jeffrey here, good friends from – Dixieland, my southern friends, not my only southern friends, I don't think. It's hard to know how many southern friends I have because people in the south are so darn friendly. Are they really my friends? I don't know. They're friendly. They're friendly. They're friend-ish, but are they really my friends? But I know that Jeff and Missy truly are my friends. Um, great brother and sister in the Lord. Megan is watching. Megan, hello. Thanks for joining. So we're talking about the Bible. And we're talking about how the Bible is a single book, and yet it's got a, um, 
it's really it's it's more of a mini library of books it's a collection of 66 different books and it's really incredible because unlike other holy books holy books i put that in big scare quotes other religious books the bible was not written by one guy who discovered some plates or one guy who went up into um uh, a cave and spoke to you know, an apparition. Now, the Bible is a collection of 66 different books written by um, about 40 different authors over a period of 1,500 years and in three different languages. You've got Aramaic and Hebrew in the Old Testament, and then you've got Greek, Koine Greek in the New Testament. And, uh, oh, Missy says, if they say, hey, then they are your friends. Okay, good. Yeah, that's that's good. And I've got a lot of Southern friends. Nashville, in uh, Atlanta, um, down at uh, Fort uh, Fort Benning, I think. I hope I got that right. Um, okay, Jerry says his group is meeting Thursday at Tab and Tenders, Route Fifty Nine and Ninety Fifth. That must be a new place. That wasn't there when I lived when I lived out there. But um, awesome, yeah. So definitely recommend Jerry's group. And if you're down in Georgia, then uh, uh, the Beardens are definitely some people to get to know. Great, great, great people. All right, but we're talking about the Bible. And we're talking about how the Bible is a collection of books, incredibly diverse authorship. Um, <clears throat> it's, got, it's got poetry. It's got prose. It's got history. It's got... Um, certain chapters which are almost like a scientific treatise. It's got theological treatises. It's got an entire book where God's not even mentioned once, the book of Esther. And um, it's got other books where the word, you know, God and Lord and Yahweh are, are mentioned countless innumerable, innumerable times. Um, it's an incredibly diverse collection of literature. It's a mini library of books. Uh, and the Bible is, if you don't know about the Bible, and I'm, most of the people watching this, I'm sure, do. But if you flip open to about two-thirds of the way through, you'll see a break um, in between the books of the Bible. You've got <clears throat> the first section, which goes from Genesis to Malachi, the book of Malachi. Okay, And now here I am at the end of Malachi, which is the 39th book of the Old Testament. And then I flip the page here, and I get to this. See what it says? The New Testament. Well, it's one page in my Bible, but uh, in between the Old and New Testaments. But before I get to Matthew, between Malachi and Matthew is really a gap of 400 years where nothing happened. I take that back. It's not that nothing happened. Um, Hanukkah happened during that time. Um, oh, and it's called Tap in Enders. Jerry's group meets at Tap in Enders. I have no idea what Tap in Enders is, but it sounds awesome. And it's a great group. So go check it out. Uh, Joyce is here. Hello, Joyce. Thanks for following along on this crazy adventure. We're talking about the Bible tonight. And Joyce, is John with you? AKA Muddy Waters, my good friend Muddy Waters. Um, we're talking about how the Bible is a collection of books. And what would you expect with a book like, like this? That's really a collection of books. Remember, this isn't just one guy out in the middle of the woods who came up with this. Um, it's an incredibly diverse book. Well, here's what you would expect or what you wouldn't expect. You would not expect a book like this to be 
unified. In fact, you would expect it to be anything but unified. Um, you've got a period of 1,500 years with a 400-year gap in the right in the middle, or about two-thirds of the way through, where nothing really happened. And uh, no new scripture was written. And yet, when the New Testament picks back up, it's continuous. It picks right up where Malachi left off. Malachi said that John the Baptist was going to come, that there'd be a prophet who was going to come in the wilderness and proclaim the, the coming of the Lord. And then the New Testament opens up, and who's there? John the Baptist, a voice in the wilderness proclaiming the coming of the Lord. The Bible is incredibly unified. It's, it's really amazing. It should be anything but unified, and yet that's exactly what it is. It's a singular, unified book that progresses through its chapters, through its themes, from Genesis to Revelation. It develops these different themes. Um, it's got a unified story beginning with the dawn of time and ending with the, with the end of the universe and the remaking, the rebirth of the universe. Um, we, there's a lot of different things we could talk about that unify the Bible and that really make it an incredible collection of literature. But that's not what I, what I want to focus on tonight. I want to focus tonight on a literary technique called foreshadowing. And, um, and Jerry has just told me, okay, it's tap and tenders. That makes more sense. Jerry's group meets at tap and tenders. Jerry, you're just trying to get me to mention your group like 15 times. Well, mission accomplished, my friend. Um, go to Jerry's group. Lindsay's here. What's up, Lindsay? Billy is here. Uh, Lindsay and Billy are like basically surrogate parents for my kids. Um, <laughs> pretty much. They are uh, constantly watching Jacob and Fia and um, little Jojo. And uh, so glad. Thank you. Glad you guys are joining us. Thank you for joining me. Um, we're talking about the Bible. We're talking about how it's unified, even though it really should not be unified. It should be anything but unified. And one of the most incredible things about the Bible is that when you examine it, what you find out is that even though it had 40 human authors, really it has one overarching transcendent author. It's as if there are 40 authors all writing down at their tables, right, hiding in their caves, um, writing in their, in their studies, writing out in the middle of fields, everywhere that they wrote scripture. And, um, and yet overseeing all of them is one great big author with his divine pen writing out the whole story from beginning to end. And then the little human authors are underneath him writing down uh, what they want to write. And it just so happens that they're writing exactly what the big divine author wants them to write. And um, so, so here's the point of tonight's video. Okay, we're 11 minutes and 10 seconds in. I think it's time we got to the point. Although I will say when I was preaching, sometimes I would take way longer to get to the point. But here's the point. There's an, a strong argument for God's existence in the fact that the Bible contains foreshadowing. Now, this is an, I think this is an original argument. I don't know of anyone else who's come up with this argument. I'm not saying I'm the first one to come up with it in the history of the world. I'm just the first person that I know. All right. And the point is the Bible contains foreshadowing, which is a literary device. And if the Bible contains foreshadowing, then the Bible's author, the Bible must have a divine author. The Bible's author must be God. The Bible does contain foreshadowing. Therefore, the author of the Bible is God. So the question we're addressing here is, how do I know 
that the Bible is actually written by God because wasn't the Bible written by men? You know, I don't know about you, but I've been told, I've had people tell me this since, at least since I was 17. And I was in Miss Winokur's English honors class. And I don't know if Miss Winokur will ever watch this video. I highly doubt it. But with Facebook and things like that, um, with the nature of the internet, who knows, maybe she'll see it. Jennifer Winokur, if any of you know her, let her know that I, I gave her a shout out. I really enjoyed that class. Uh, one of the things I enjoyed about it, all the debates we got in. And one of the things that we debated was the Bible, believe it or not. Of course, it makes sense. It was a, a literature class. The Bible is the best book of literature ever. And so um, one, of the, one of the things that she said, she actually made the argument one time. She said, well, the Bible is written by men. Who wrote the Bible? Men wrote the Bible. Okay. Yes. True. But the whole theology of the Bible what Christians believe about it is that, yes, it was written by men. That actually happened. The Bible didn't just drop down out of the sky. And yet, those men were carried along by the Holy Spirit who wrote exactly what God wanted them to write. And uh, we've just been joined by Lynn de Russia and Michelle Ivanik. Hello, ladies. Uh, thanks for joining us. And uh, um I'm so glad that you're you're watching. We're talking about the Bible tonight. We're talking about how do we know that the Bible is really authored by God? And we're we're making the argument that because the Bible has foreshadowing in it, therefore the Bible must have an author. But because the Bible is so diverse, it had 40 different authors. So there's no way that Moses writing 1500 years before Jesus could have intentionally foreshadowed something that happened 1500 years later, 1530 years later. When Jesus was crucified. And so, but there is foreshadowing between Moses and David and the other authors and Christ. And therefore, there must be an author above all the human authors writing the story or who, who already wrote the story. And that author must be God. Hey, Amber, what's up? Thanks for joining. Who's watching with you right now? Let me know in the comments. Um, thanks for joining us. So we're talking about the Bible as literature, and we're talking about foreshadowing. So this is right up your alley. So now I'm actually going to be held accountable by an actual um, English teacher who knows what she's talking about. She knows about literature. So uh, Amber, you'll have to let me know if I get anything wrong here when I'm talking about foreshadowing. So here, I've got a definition of foreshadowing from literarydevices.net. I figure you want to know about Literary devices, you go to literarydevices.net. And that is, a, that is an authoritative sounding website. So here we go. The definition of foreshadowing. Foreshadowing is a literary device in which a writer gives an advance hint of what is to come later in the story. Foreshadowing often appears at the beginning of a story or a chapter and helps the reader develop expectations about the coming events in a story. There are various ways to create foreshadowing. And um, the website continues. Um, I actually just listened to a, uh, ah, you and the cats and your husband are all watching. Awesome. Um, well, I'm so glad that you guys are watching. And uh, hopefully uh, you'll get something useful here. And if not, then hopefully you just enjoy looking at my ugly mug. Uh, we are talking about foreshadowing. So foreshadowing, there's so many great examples of foreshadowing in literature, in film, I just got done listening to the Wolverine podcast 
And, uh, oh, okay. Amber says that the website for sh literarydevices.net is a solid website. Okay, there you go. I feel vindicated now. It's a good website. I feel vindicated in using it. Okay, so I just got done listening to the Wolverine podcast. It's called The Long Night. Um, I can't recommend it for kids or the squeamish, but um, I don't know. There's something, there's something about me. I've always enjoyed stuff that's a little more on the darker side of entertainment. Not like super dark, because that's disturbing. Okay, I don't I hate horror movies, but stuff that kind of gets it like the the gritty underbelly of life. Um Ecclesiastes, I've always said has been my favorite book of the Bible. If you know about Ecclesiastes, um it's it's awesome. <laughs> it's but it is dark. It is uh it is gritty. It's got a happy ending, but it's gritty. Um anyway, so the Wolverine podcast is rife with foreshadowing and there's this mystery surrounding these um, these murders and you've got to try to figure out, you know, who's causing these murders and is it Wolverine? Is it Logan who caused the, the murders or is it somebody else or is it him and somebody else? And is this good or bad? And they're leaving you all these clues and you're trying to figure, you're trying to figure it out. But what they're doing is they're foreshadowing throughout the whole story um, what the inevitable conclusion is. And I won't spoil that for you in case you want to listen to it, but I will spoil a couple of other movies for you. So if, have you ever seen Fight Club? Anybody ever seen Fight Club? Okay, this is like my, one of my favorite movies when I was a freshman in college, in undergrad. I think it's kind of a, like a prerequisite if you're going to be a freshman in undergrad, freshman guy, 19 years old, you got to like Fight Club. So um, again, I don't recommend this for kids uh, at all. Terrible movie. If you're a child watching this, don't watch Fight Club. Not good. But if you're a little older, um, you know, Paul says everything is uh, permissible. Okay, but I will not be mastered by anything. All right. Um, I feel like I just dug myself into a hole. Let's move on. All right. Amber has seen, okay, wonderful. Fight Club. Great. So it's about a man who, who meets his friend, Tyler Durden. And uh, this is a guy stuck in a dead-end job. It's... Uh, it's, his, his outlook is pretty bleak on life. But then he meets this guy, Tyler Durden. And um, Tyler and he start this fight club, which, of course, is the title of the movie. And um, the, it starts with them getting in this brutal knockdown, drag out fight. And it's just this really cathartic scene. Okay, so, um, uh, but there's a twist. And now here's a spoiler alert. Okay, so block the speakers or mute it if you don't want to be, whatever everyone's already seen fight club if you're going to see it you're not going to like see it for the first time now but um the plot twist is this the narrator whose name we never learned but edward norton's character is everything okay yeah okay i'm gonna read that in a second uh that's good the narrator is tyler durden tyler durden is an alternate personality of the narrator and it's like this huge reveal. It's awesome. But when you go back and watch the movie the second time, you see all these hints. Um, there's this one scene where the narrator is at his job, his dead-end job, and he wants to get fired. But he wants uh, – it's this whole scene where he's going to blackmail his boss. And what does he do? He starts punching himself in the face. And he is um, – uh, as he's punching himself, he's narrating the story too. And you hear him. He says, for some reason, I – thought of my first fight with Tyler and he's punching himself in the face. And it's what it's doing is he's, it's foreshadowing. It's setting you up 
for the inevitable conclusion that his that he is Tyler Durden and his first fight with Tyler Durden was actually him punching himself in the face. So of course, when he's punching himself in the face and he knows it, it reminds him of his first fight with Tyler because that too was himself punching himself in the face. And uh, Jeff Bearden says that everything changes when somebody gets punched in the face. Yeah, that's that's a fact. That is a fact. Um, I'm going to like that. There we go. I'm going to go ahead. There we go. That's a like. Um, everything changes when you head when you when you get headbutted or when you headbutt somebody in the face too. And sadly, I know that a friend told me that. Um, so, look, rugby's a crazy sport, you guys. I don't recommend it. Actually, I do. It's amazing. Um, so where are we at? So, Fight Club has some great foreshadowing in it. Um, the usual suspects, you're, the whole time you're watching that movie, you're trying to figure out who Kaiser Sose is. Fantastic movie. Tons of foreshadowing in that movie. But here's the point. These are works of fiction. There is a screenwriter, there's an author behind these examples of foreshadowing. Foreshadowing only makes sense when there's an author putting these things together. Look, if there's foreshadowing that takes place in real life or like perceived foreshadowing, that shouldn't make sense. That shouldn't happen. Foreshadowing only makes sense if there's an author because the author is the one who's giving you clues. The author has to know what the inevitable conclusion is going to be, how the story ends in order to put the clue in at the beginning. If the author doesn't know the conclusion of the story, then any hint you get at the beginning is purely coincidence. It's, it's happenstance. It's serendipitous. It was unintentional. And yet, foreshadowing used really well is actually this, one of the signs of a really skilled author. So where does this leave us with the Bible? Because remember, the Bible is an incredibly diverse book. It's got all kinds of different literature in it. But the Bible is history. Um, Dean loves this. Wait a minute. Dean knows that story about me? <laughs> well, I guess my cover's blown. Um, cool. Uh, tell Dean, I said, I said, hey, please, we need to talk to him next. Um, and uh, yes, all right, good. Where are we at? We are talking about um, foreshadowing. And we're talking about how in the Bible, there is foreshadowing. You see, um, the Bible shouldn't contain foreshadowing because it's just history, okay? You're, I mean, it, it's, it's different literary genres, but it's the record of a people. It's the record of the Israelite people and the, the Judahites, the Israelites and the Judahites. And, and yet there are things that, um, yeah, foreshadowing. Exactly. Uh, foreshadowing is taking place right now. Do you know, I actually had a moment of foreshadowing in my own life. This is funny. Now, obviously this makes sense to me. Like, spoiler alert. I believe in God. All right. Like, you know that already. So I am actually not too surprised when I see examples of foreshadowing in my own life. But there was, when I was like 20 years old, I was coming back from a rugby match. This is funny. I was coming back from a rugby match and I'm standing outside my door and I'm thinking to myself, and I don't, I don't know what brought on this thought, okay? But when I was in, when I was 20, uh, I was not living for the Lord. I didn't really know that I wasn't living for the Lord. I mean, but looking back on it, I, I was not. Um, I had, I had slid down. The Lord has saved me. 
you guys, the Lord has rescued me from the depth of my own depravity. Like you just, you wouldn't believe. I mean, Paul called himself the chief of sinners, but he never met me. All right. And, uh, and he never met him. I can tell you that. So, um, so where are we at? So there I am. I'm 20 years old. I'm standing outside my dorm room. And uh, Jeff, that was just a test to see if you're still watching. And I thought to myself, it's a sunny day. I can, I can picture it clear as, as if it happened yesterday. I thought to myself, I will never become a pastor. I don't know why I thought that. I will never become a pastor. Why? Because pastors are holy people. Pastors have to be holy and I'm not holy. All right. If you were to write out my biography, someday if I ever write my memoirs or my autobiography, um, that scene has to be included. Because at that moment, I was unwittingly, ironically setting the course for the next 15 years of my life. Um, if you know my story, of course, uh, after college, I yeah, I worked in a bunch of different industries, but I eventually became a pastor. And now I'm actually working with pastors at different churches to teach people, followers of Jesus, about how to share and defend the Christian message. The very one that I thought I was unqualified to preach and teach. And you know what? I was unqualified. Um, but the Lord saved me. The Lord changed me. The Lord uh, redeemed my life. And he can do the same thing for you. But is he real? That's the question. That's what we're trying to uncover. And let's get back into it. So the Bible contains elements of foreshadowing. And again, the argument is this. If the Bible has examples of foreshadowing, then the Bible must have an author. But that author is not Moses. It's not Paul. It's not David, because those guys all died. They didn't live long enough to fulfill the foreshadowing um, from the beginning of the book to the end of the book. Foreshadowing would only happen if the story were intentionally planned and written and carried out by a divine author. The author would have to be God. Because remember, we're talking about real events that actually happened. So this author would not only have to write the story, but the Bible is not fiction. The Bible is actually historical fact. And so the, the, this author would have to not only write the story, but would have to make sure that the events were carried out in actual human history, and then make sure that those events were recorded in the exact way that he wanted them to be recorded, and that they would have to make it into this collection of books that we call the Bible. Now, does the Bible contain foreshadowing? I've been saying that it does. How about some examples? Do we have any examples? How about this? I'm about to give you some examples, but let's see if you all know any, any examples. Are there any examples of things in the Bible that foreshadow things to come? Okay, and, and I'm keeping that kind of intentionally vague just to see if, you know, see what you come up with. Because you probably have some examples that, that, I, don't, uh, that I don't have. So a year ago, give or take, I wrote this blog article. And it was just about right before Good Friday. And I wrote this blog article about foreshadowing. And I gave some examples. And the examples are pretty much focused on the death of Christ being foreshadowed in the Old Testament because we were getting close to um, we were getting close to Good Friday. So, okay. Oh, Jeff, you just joined. Um, well, okay. You didn't, you must've missed it, but I just said that uh, Paul called himself the chief of sinners, but then again, he never met Jeff Bearden. So uh, that was a test to see if you're still watching. You didn't react. I took it. You weren't watching, but now apparently you are. And uh, Greg Wilson is, is watching. Uh, Greg, good to see you. Greg and Linda. So I was talking about how the Parisians are like surrogate parents for our children, for Elisa and me, for our children. Um, the Wilsons played that role 
when we lived out in um, when we lived in Aurora, Greg. Mm. Okay. Well, that's good. Yes, you have to watch if you're going to comment. That's good. Um, Greg and Linda Wilson uh, used to just take such good care of our kids. Um, Greg has just helped us out a ton. Greg and Linda helped us out a ton. They were like a third set of grandma and grandpa for us, for the kids. Um, So, Greg, glad you're watching. And by the way, Greg is a phenomenal photographer. Um, I am a big fan of scenic photography, and Greg takes some of the best shots that I've ever seen of California and Scotland. It's just gorgeous stuff. So, um, anyway, but I digress. Here's some examples of foreshadowing in the Bible. Now, now, just to qualify this, I'm not talking about prophecy, all right? Because the Bible is loaded with prophecy. I'm not talking about like specifically um, Moses said, for example, that there would be a prophet who would arise from the Israelites, from their own brothers, and they would have to listen to everything that he said, and it would be a prophet like Moses. That is a direct prophecy. That is a propositional statement that is directly fulfilled by Jesus. That's not exactly what I'm talking about. I'm talking about circumstantial things that are woven into the narrative that you're, you're almost, as you read the Old Testament, you're like, what's going on with that? That doesn't really seem to make a whole lot of sense. But then you, you get to the New Testament and you get to the life, death, and resurrection of Christ and you find out, oh, that, oh, that was foreshadowing. Amazing. Wow. Cool. And we recognize these things and we say, wow, there must be a really skilled author behind the Bible. Um, if you don't recognize the foreshadowing in scripture, you can't recognize foreshadowing in any literature. I'm just going to say that. It's so blatantly obvious that to deny it in the Bible, you'd have to say it's not a thing. No, you couldn't recognize it in any literature. But here's the thing. Of course, we do recognize it in literature. Of course we do. Which means we should also recognize it in the Bible. Very far afield on that. I'm not going to. Here are some examples from Scripture. It was foreshadowed that Jesus would be betrayed by a friend who ate his bread. Okay, that the Messiah who was to come would be would be betrayed by a friend who ate his bread. This was foreshadowed in Psalm 41, verse 9. Listen what it says. Even my friend in whom I trusted, one who ate my bread, has raised his heel against me. Now, um, in scripture, the idea of raising your heel is you're going to crush that person. You're going to step on them. In fact, in Genesis 3.15, God tells the snake that the offspring of the woman is going um, to strike his head and that he was going to bruise his heel. There's this idea that the heel is going to crush the serpent's head. And so now here you've got the Uh, the foreshadowing that someone is going to raise his heel against the Messiah as if the Messiah was a snake to be stepped on as if he was an enemy to be crushed. Well, when was that fulfilled? When did somebody treat Jesus as if he was the devil? When did somebody treat Jesus as if he was a snake and had to be snuffed out, wiped out? And when, when was that done by somebody who ate bread with the Messiah. Well, that happened. That was fulfilled in Mark chapter 14, verse 10 and 32 through 42. It says, Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. And Jesus actually said, 
one of you will betray me. Get this. One who is eating with me. Get this, as if that wasn't specific enough. The one who is dipping bread in the bowl with me. It couldn't get any more specific than that. So here you've got 700 years prior, you've got the psalmist saying that his friend in whom he trusted, who ate his bread, has raised his heel. And then you've got Judas trusted by Jesus, although, although of course, Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him because he predicts it. But he says, the one who's dipping bread in the bowl with me, who is, is, is eating my bread, the bread that Jesus just broke, the matzah of Passover is broken by Jesus, is handed out, and Judas eats it, and Judas goes and um, he betrays Jesus. Foreshadowed, not directly prophesied, but foreshadowed. Amazing. How is that possible without a divine author? That's what I want to know. I mean, it, was Judas intentionally doing this? Of course not. Judas was not trying to fulfill Scripture. Judas was trying to counteract God's will. Of course, you can't counteract God's will. God's the author of the story. What, are you going to outsmart God? Not possible. Okay. Um, Lindsay Parisi says, is typography a form of foreshadowing? I mean, yeah. I, I, um, is type, I, I'm going to say yes, but this is like the Joel Sedeke's system of Bible categorization. All right? Here's why I say that. Because foreshadowing, when I'm using foreshadowing, I'm using it in the sense that we all learned it back in literature class. You know, English literature, American lit, American lit. I'm talking about like, like something that, that, that happens and it conveys, it points forward to something that's going to happen further. Typography, typology in scripture is a specific theological um, type of foreshadowing where there's like, there's a, there's someone or something that directly represents someone or someone or something in the old covenant in the old Testament that directly represents and is fulfilled by something in the new Testament. So yeah, they're very similar. I, I don't, I mean, I don't know if you get D.A. Carson in the conversation, um, he might say, you know, that's that's a bunch of hogwash, Joel, you're mixing your categories. Fine. I'm talking about foreshadowing in the sense that we all understand it in just general literature. Um, whether or not that's a specific theological category, I don't know. Maybe they're one and the same. I would say that typography or typology is a more specific kind of foreshadowing. I don't Does that help? Does that make sense? Um, Nathan is watching. What's up, man? Dude, you and I have been waiting to have a conversation like this for a long time. Um, and now we're kind of having it. So I guess comment in the comments if you want to, you know, whatever, ask questions, push back. Uh, Nancy Aaron is watching. Good to see you. Melissa Cavers is watching. Um, hopefully Bear's not watching. Is Bear watching? He should be asleep. Well, maybe not. I don't know. He's a little guy. They tend to wake up. But if he's watching, what's up, Bear? Um, Mike, if you're watching, um, good. Uh, glad you're watching. Good to see you. I keep saying good to see you, but I, I don't really see you guys. I just see your avatars popping up. Um, Carol Navarro is watching. Carol, hello. Um, and uh, okay, so here we are. Judas is foreshadowed. Let's look at just like one more. We're at 35 minutes. I can't believe you guys are still hanging with me. I try to make these things 30 minutes, but, um, you know, what can I say? I go along. And I, I went long every week when I preached as well. I was supposed to keep it at 35 minutes. You know what? I just planned on 42 minutes. I was 42 minutes every time. Um, and, uh, and hey, nobody walked out of the sanctuary. Although there was a couple of times when I know people wanted to. 
All right, uh, how about this? Let's stick with the theme of Judas. So Judas betrayed Jesus. And um, the foreshadowing about Judas gets even more specific. What about this? The Lord would be valued at just 30 pieces of silver. All right, that was foreshadowed. Oh, okay, okay, here. All right, Jeff Bearden. Just to be clear, I was watching with Missy on her iPad, but she didn't want to type my comments. Okay, but, uh, so, okay, fair enough. Got it. I understand now. Um, I'm a little, okay, so, so would John 3.14 be an example where the Bible actually tells us of a foreshadowing? Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Boom. Totally. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a great, great, great example because the snake is lifted up. Of course, the snake, the serpent being the symbol of evil from the um, from Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, the serpent deceived Eve. And uh, then the people are bitten. The, here's what Jeff's talking about. In the book of Exodus, the Israelite people are wandering in the wilderness and they're complaining, they're griping against God, basically saying that God, we don't want your way, we want our way. They're rebelling against God in the wilderness. And so God sends a bunch of snakes into their camp and the snakes, they're poisonous vipers and they start biting them. And you think, wow, this is it for Israel. This is the end. And you know what? They deserve it. They have it coming. God's people have been rebelling against God and um, and this is this is the end for them. All right. And, and they're being bitten by the symbol of evil, the serpent. But then God tells Moses to craft a bronze snake and put it on a pole and lift it up above the congregation. And everyone who looks at the bronze snake, the evil being lifted up on a, on a pike, on a pole, everyone who looks at that, just looks to it, will be saved. Now, of course, God's commanding that they look and then they'll be saved. So they're looking with the expectation that they're going to be saved. You see what I'm saying? They're looking with this salvific hope. They're looking with the hope that, 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 that something about this evil being lifted up on the pike, on the pole, on the, not, well, on the, dare I say, cross, um, will save them. And, um, oh, good. Mike's in. Good. Okay. Bear sleeping. Mike's in. Awesome. Um, uh, Missy, that is a really good question. Let me, let me think about that just, just for a second here. Um, so then Jesus says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up. Absolutely. So now, so that story about Moses is, it's just, a, it's a little self-contained story. It's not like Moses goes, and in the same way, the anointed one, the prophet like me, the king, prophet, priest will also be lifted up on a, on a pole and will also um, symbolize evil or will take evil, will become a sign of evil lifted up uh, and everyone who looks on him will be saved. No, Moses doesn't say that. It's not a direct prophecy. And yet Jesus actually does make a direct prophecy using the story, the true story, the account of the snake on the bronze pole as a symbol of what's going to happen for him. And so when Jesus was lifted up, what did he, what did he do? He was lifted up and the apostle Paul says in first Corinthians five, that he, God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that we could become the righteousness of God. Here you've got um, someone very precious. Bronze is very precious, but it's made to look like an evil snake. 
um, you've got someone very precious, someone very holy who knew no sin, being lifted up, placed on a pike, placed on a cross, lifted up on a stake, and now everyone who looks on him with the hope of that, that he alone can save you will be saved. Not from a snake bite, but from something much worse, from the bite of the evil serpent, the bite, the sting of of death, which is sin, the Bible says, from the sting of Satan, which is um, his ability to condemn us, which is his ability to rightly accuse us because we're sinners before God. But everyone who looks on Jesus, who took our sin, who looks to him to save us, will be saved. And that is a great example, man. I'm preaching. That is a good example of some solid foreshadowing. Okay, what other examples do we have? All right, let's talk about it. But first, Missy asks, do other religious groups claim foreshadowing of their holy books? Good question. Um, I don't know about foreshadowing. I'm, I don't know. Who, I, I'm kind of like, I'm not saying I'm the first. I'm just the first person that I know who specifically talks about foreshadowing in this way. And maybe, you know, maybe there's some really good works on um, like typology, typography, where they would get into some of the same kind of thing. I do know this. Islam claims, Muslims claim that Muhammad is actually um, prophesied in the Bible. For example, when Moses says that another prophet will arise from among your brothers, and he'll be a prophet like me, and you have to listen to him. Muslims claim that passage for Muhammad. Now, that that prophecy doesn't work for Muhammad. Uh, the prophecy only works for Jesus, because Jesus did come from among their brothers. Um, Jesus was actually an Israelite. Um, also, Jesus was in the the line of um, he he stands in the tradition of the Hebrew Scriptures. He's he it's the same God that Moses worshipped, that Abraham worshipped. Is the same God that Jesus worshipped when Jesus prayed to his father. Muhammad's conception of God, Allah, is very different. And yes, I know the word Allah means God technically, but if you look conceptually, they're very different conceptions of what it means to be God. So Muhammad actually is not fulfilled by that prophecy. And there's other prophecies when Jesus says he would send another comforter. Uh, Muslims claim that for Muhammad. That's actually talking about the Holy Spirit. So that one doesn't work. Um, but there are claims that um, that there's prophecy that's fulfilled by other religious uh, leaders, prophets, texts. But um, I don't know. I don't know about foreshadowing. And here's the thing. Here's the incredible thing about the Bible. The Bible, as we talked about, it's 66 different books, but it's a complete and cohesive, coherent whole. From Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation 22, it is, it is complete. It's a complete work. No other religion has a book like the Bible. It's always the holy book plus the traditions. Even modern-day Judaism, uh, post-Second Temple Judaism, since the temple's been destroyed, there's the Talmud, which is the the oral tradition and there's um and there's other components of the oral tradition depending on what you accept that interprets scripture look roman catholicism has the exact same thing you've got the bible and then you've got what the the magisterium has said is tradition and supposedly those two things work together but in reality they don't and to get all of roman catholicism you can't just take the bible alone that was what one of the things that the reformers said was sola scriptura we we are saved by faith in Scripture, or um, in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, according to the Scriptures alone. The Bible has within it a, a complete worldview, a self-contained story. 
And um, so even if other religions were to claim something similar for themselves, the rest of their holy, and again, I use scare, scare quotes for that, um, the rest of their books aren't in accordance with scripture. And so they're clearly not written by the same author. They're not written by the same divine author. All right. Um, we're going to look at some other examples in just a second. Greg says, we're such short-term thinkers, we almost avoid or ignore foreshadowing as it would hold us to account. Mm. Greg, could you elaborate on that a little bit? What do you mean by that? It would hold us to account. Do you mean that if we were to admit that there's foreshadowing in Scripture, that would admit that the Bible is written by God and therefore there is a God who has written history and that God is clearly the author of the world and as the author would exercise authority, which means that we would owe him our very lives and it would hold us to account in that way? Um, or am I putting words in your mouth? Help me understand what you mean by that. I, I, I'm going to look forward to your explanation on that. Uh, but I'm fascinated. Um, so the Lord would be valued at just 30 pieces of silver. Now that's, pro that's um, foreshadowed in Zechariah 11, verses 12 and 13, where, um, where the prophet says this, Then I said to them, If it seems right to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. So they weighed my wages, 30 pieces of silver. The Lord said this to me, Magnificent price, I was valued by them. So the Lord is saying that he was valued at 30 pieces of silver. Now, if you just read Zechariah, it's kind of a weird passage. That passage in Zechariah 11 is a little bit obscure. It's a little weird. What does this mean? And, you know, it's really interesting. In Zechariah 11:13, it says this, Throw it to the potter, the Lord said to me. So I took 30 pieces of silver and I threw it into the house of the Lord to the potter. What is going on there? The house of the Lord, that's the temple. What does that have to do with a potter? Why does the Lord say that he was valued at 30 pieces of silver? Why is the 30 pieces of silver being given or thrown? Uh, you know, if you throw something, especially coins, imagine just taking coins out of your pocket, just chucking them. I don't want these. You know, you're saying, you're saying uh, this is abhorrent to me. I, I don't I don't I don't even want to keep this in my purse, in my wallet, in my pocket. Get rid of these. Okay. What does any of this have to do with anything? Okay, but now fast forward till you get to uh Mark. No, no, no. Matthew chapter 26. Judas, remember, Judas is the one who betrayed Jesus, one of his own disciples. Matthew 26, 15. Judas goes to the Jewish authorities the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes and the priests. And here's what he tells them. He asks them, what are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? If I hand over Jesus, if I betray Jesus. So they weighed out how much? Not everybody at once. 30 pieces of silver. The price that the Lord was valued by them was 30 pieces of silver. Suddenly, Zechariah's statement is brought into fulfillment. It's brought into the light. And it suddenly makes sense. But then Judas takes the 30 pieces of silver. He's very, he's very greedy. Judas was very greedy. He actually used to steal from the, the treasury, the disciples' treasury. But he takes the 30 pieces of silver. But then later on when he finds out, when he sees what actually happens to Jesus, what does he do? He 
he gets disgusted with what he's done. He gets disgusted with the whole thing. And he takes the 30 pieces of silver and he brings it back to the religious leaders. He brings it back to the house of the Lord, so to speak. And um, what does he do? He throws the silver into the temple. He throws it, he actually, not even so to speak, he throws it into the, the temple. Matthew chapter 27, verses 5 and 7. And so what do they do? The Pharisees and the priests, they can't keep this money because it's blood money. And all of a sudden they become sanctimonious and self-righteous. And, oh, well, you know, we could betray Jesus with this money, but we certainly couldn't keep this money. So Judas throws the money, just like Zechariah said in chapter 11 of Zechariah, which was written hundreds of years prior. And they conferred together, it says, and they bought the potter's field with it. Not just any field, but the potter's field. Isn't that interesting? The potter's field. And... um and so here we have a great example of foreshadowing in Zechariah, hundreds of years later, it's fulfilled in the situation surrounding the death of Christ. And I'm just looking something up. Is that the same field that Judas was eventually killed in? Yes, I think so. Okay, well, so maybe somebody could look that up. Is the potter's field the same field? Anyway, I... Uh, Judas eventually went and killed himself. He hung himself in the potter's field. So um, it's just some really strong symbolism, some really strong foreshadowing. Look, there are several other examples. I actually give 20 examples of foreshadowing just merely related to the death of Christ. And there is so much more in Scripture that we could talk about. But simply related to the death of Christ, there are at least 20 examples, and that's what I found. So if you want to see these examples, you can go to my blog. My blog is setacase.wordpress.com. I'm going to just write that in the comments. And um, and I'll actually just, I'll put a link up in the, um, I'll put a link in the description of this video. And you know what, here, I'm going to give a link right in the comments. But I have, I've got 20 different examples, and I, I didn't know how many I was going to get to tonight. Definitely not 20. I got to two, but uh, that's okay. We're way over time. That's all right. I wanted to make this one more um, more interactive. You guys have been awesome. Um, I'm, uh, I'm so appreciative of you guys watching, but look, here's the point. The Bible has foreshadowing in it. There's just no question. But the Bible is history. And so if the Bible has foreshadowing, then that means human history has an author. And the Bible has that same author. And that means that the Bible was written by God. Look, if you want to be, if you want to apply anything, um, Amber, thanks for watching. Um, thank you guys. God bless you. Talk to you later, Garcias. Um, we're just wrapping up now, but if you want to see, if you want to recognize foreshadowing in any in any literature, then you have to look at scripture with the same lens, with with the same um, approach. And when you do that, you find that the Bible has an author from Genesis to Revelation. It has the same author. The only way that's possible is if it's written by God. Because it would be the same author that the Bible talks about. It would have to be an author who is 
transcendent of human history. It's, it would have to be an author who is able to um, move human history in the direction that he wants. An, an author who actually wrote human history in advance, who knows the beginning from the end and actually declares the beginning from the end. And if that's possible, um, then, then the very author of the Bible and of human history must be the author, must be God, the very God that the Bible declares is God. The very God that we find in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, that says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It would have to be the very same God that the book of Revelation proclaims. It would have to be the very same God that Jesus proclaimed when he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus says. And so what that means is that Jesus is God. Jesus is the way to God. And Jesus is God. He is the God who is the way to God. He's the second person of the Trinity. The Bible declares that God, the author of human history, is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And... That is the God that we get to know as we read the Bible. Um, Greg, you're, you said, I'm thinking about once the Israelites looked at the serpent and were healed, they never thought again about its potential foreshadowing or how the healing lesson should fundamentally change them personally. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Okay, so they were healed physically, but there was still a deeper spiritual healing that many of them missed. Man, that is good. That reminds me of the 10 lepers who Jesus healed. and. Um, it's eight or nine of them leave and only two come back. I think they were Samaritans. They come back and thank Jesus. Um, they, the others had been healed physically, but they missed out on the spiritual healing, that connection to Jesus. How often, man, how often do we receive God's blessing in our lives? And man, we're calling out to him, calling out to him. And then he blesses us. And once we get out of that pit, then we forget about him, you know? Um, and we never think about how that, that mercy is meant to lead us to Christ, is meant to lead us to God. Um, Alan, thank you for joining me, man. That's awesome. Uh, Joe Nissen. Hey, man, I hope I pronounced your name correctly. But Joe, uh, so Alan is the youth pastor, newly minted full-time youth pastor at my church, Park Community Church, Forest Glen. And I'm very happy to say that it's my church once again, my church family. Not my church, it's Jesus' church, but I, it's my church family. And uh, Joe is one of the co-hosts of the Pastor Discussions podcast. Man, you guys want to listen to a great podcast? Go to pastordiscussions.com. And um, if you want to listen to a really great episode, uh, shameless plug, I'm on talking about apologetics on like two episodes ago, I guess, Joe, is that right? Have you, I'm sure you've recorded another one since then. I probably came out today. I haven't listened yet, but um, anyway. Uh, oh, and Joe, by the way, I'm drinking out of the exact same mug. I got my resurrection coffee mug. Same when I was drinking from when I was on your podcast. Um, all right. So um, the Bible has an author. The author is God. And the whole Bible has, a, has one theme, and that theme is about Jesus. And your life has the exact same author that the Bible has. And your story, man, maybe it's filled with tragedy. Maybe it's filled with joy. Uh, maybe it's filled with a lot of both. 
but your story can have a happy ending. Now, I didn't write your story. Psalm 139 says that all the days of our lives were written in God's book before a single one of them happened. But I can tell you this, that God works. God's story includes real human beings making actual decisions. And I'm going to tell you this, that if you're watching this right now and you don't yet know that author and that God who wrote your story, what the Bible says is this, your story can have a happy ending. Whatever whatever you've gone through, whatever you've experienced, between your birthday and today, you can have a happy ending to your story as by coming to know personally the author of life, the author of your story. Because the Bible says that, you know, the villain in the story, yeah, there's Satan, the devil, he's real. But the villain in the story is sinful humanity. It's us. And just like those Israelites we were talking about earlier in the wilderness who complained against God, who rebelled against God, and who rightly got the, the punishment for their sin, the, uh, the snake, the, the venom bites from those vipers. Um, we've got a couple of guys, three people just joined, Elliot, Jeremy, and Tim. Uh, what's up, guys? I'm so glad that you're joining. Um, kind of a little bit of an awkward time to join. I'm talking about uh, sinners getting struck by serpents. That's okay. Um, God's sovereignty had you join at just the right time. Um, but uh, here's the point. Is that if you go through your life, if you try to write your own story apart from God, apart from Christ, your story cannot have a happy ending. It will not. But if you come to know the author of life through his son, Jesus, the one that the whole story is about, if you repent of your sins and turn to Jesus, and if you look to him, just like the Israelites looked to that bronze serpent that was up on the pole that foreshadowed Jesus, if you will look to Jesus the way that the Israelites did, you will be saved. And Missy, thank you. That's exactly right. Redemption is foreshadowed throughout the entire Bible. It's the common theme of Scripture. There are a lot of themes throughout Scripture, but the redemption of sinners, of of Villains is really what we are. The redemption of villains is the story of Scripture, and that only happens through Jesus. And so if you don't know him, this is your chance. You can turn to him right now and say, Lord, I've been living this life as if it's my own story, as if it's not about you, as if it's not written by you, it's not about Jesus. And I repent, and I renounce that, and I turn to Jesus. I believe that he died on the cross for for me, for my sins, and I entrust my life to him. And I want to welcome him into my life. I want to receive him as Savior and Lord. And I want to humbly submit myself to him. My friends, if you will do that, um, your story will have a happy ending. That happy ending starts today. It starts that very moment. And so, guys, thank you so much for watching. I hope this has been helpful. I hope you've seen that the Bible does have foreshadowing. That means that it does have an author. That that author must be God. Can't not be God. To deny that is to deny all literary criticism of any uh, of any import, of any meaning. But the Bible does have an author. That author is God, and he's the God of the universe. And our own story has a happy ending when we come to know the author of our story. How cool is that? That the character in the story gets to actually know the author. I've been a Christian for 30 years, and I feel like I'm just getting to know him. The cool thing is... Once you know Jesus, once you know God, your story has no ending. Death is not even the ending of your story. 
thank you guys for watching. Hope it was helpful. Uh, Jeff, thank you for watching. Alisa just joined. <laughs> um, uh, God bless you guys. Um, talk to you later.